0: You can take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter ten, and then we will um, give attention to the scriptures. This is the portion that we're going to study here this this morning, verses um, eleven through thirteen. For the Scripture says, "Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed." For there is no distinction between Jew and Greeks. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, give us an understanding of this text, we pray, Lord. We pray, dear Father, that we would uh, consider these truths... As they relate to our lives. Consider these truths because they are the truth. They are authority over us. And we pray, Lord, that we would submit our lives, surrender them to what you say, and would we'll do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is our ninth time looking at this chapter. Romans 10 is as. Had a lot of depth to it. it. It all does. We're taking our time through this uh, chapter to try and understand this. And I want to explain as we're doing this, even more to it, even define our theme more this morning, because I want to make sure that you understand what Paul is saying in Romans 10. It, it's a very relevant passage for us. I mean, all of Scripture is relevant. And this particular passage is very relevant and I want to show you its relevance to us. It explains why it is that unbelievers don't believe. It explains why an unbeliever is an unbeliever. How an unbeliever will believe. Now the theme is ignorance. And we've said this over and over again. It's there on the top of your notes in case you've forgotten. Israel's ignorance is particularly what we're focusing on. And what I want you to do is look once more where we get that very theme. Look at verse 2, if you will. Israel has zeal, but not in, what does it say? In accordance with what? Knowledge. They don't have the right kind, in other words, of knowledge. And then verse 3, look at it. For not knowing about God's righteousness. Or like the ESV puts it, the English Standard Version. For being ignorant. Being ignorant. That is the theme. Israel's ignorance. That is what I'd like to define a little more and explain a little more. This whole idea of ignorance. What does he mean when he says being ignorant? Ignorant. It's a real tough thing for us to understand because, again, I've said this before, that when we think of ignorance, we think we just don't know enough, but obviously that's not the case with Israel. They're in the midst of ignorance when they shouldn't be ignorant. Now, Paul wrote Romans to define the gospel. That's why he did it. God chose Israel to reveal the gospel to them in the Old Testament. You would think that we now have a match here. God started this in the Old Testament. He's doing this here in Romans. What's the problem? What Paul is doing then is explaining why Israel rejected the gospel that he taught. I mean, after all, you have had this in the Old Testament, and now we come to the New Testament, and you reject it. What gospel is it that she has rejected? It is that by grace... Through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, you can be saved. That's the gospel that she rejected. She rejected that salvation can come to you through one person and one work. His work on the cross, Jesus Christ. Why'd they reject it? That's a big question. It's a big issue. Paul knows the gospel's at stake. The veracity of the gospel, the truth of it, the, um, the fact that the gospel is the gospel, the heart of it, the believability of it is at stake dependent upon what we do with Israel, depending upon what he, can, what he can tell us about Israel. And so the first thing he tells us, chapter 9, is that God planned it that way. He says, look, this is not a surprise. This shouldn't be a stumbling block to you. If you knew the Old Testament well, you would see that God in his sovereignty has always worked this way. And so that's not a difficulty, he says. Because God is sovereign. And we learned all about that, didn't we? In chapter 9, all about the very sovereignty of God in salvation and how he has saved in the past. And then chapter 10. So that's the first part is God's side and then we have man's side, don't we? Here's why Israel's in unbelief. Here's why Israel is ignorant. Chapter 10. This ignorance is a a, a blindness. She didn't believe the gospel because of ignorance. And man, beloved, is spiritually blind. And that's what verse 3 really tells us. Verse 2 says they didn't have the right kind of knowledge. You know, usually when... People say ignorance, we think of people not having enough knowledge. But in this case, it doesn't so much have to do with the amount of knowledge, listen, but the what? The kind of knowledge. Now, in order to really show you this, and how I'm not, uh, and how Paul himself here is not introducing something that is brand new, they should know this stuff, I want you to turn to Hosea chapter 4. And I want you to see that what Paul is stating here in Romans 10 really is a reworking and a restating of Hosea 4. And I think you're going to be able to pick this up. Start at verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now that's about Israel. God is uh, brought to be in a position of destroying Israel, it says here. Why is this so? Why does he say, "Here's my people," and they're just they're being destroyed for lack of knowledge? Is he saying, "Oh, oh, you're hurting yourselves, Israel"? No, he's the one actually doing the destruct, destroying, bringing the destruction. Why is it? Is because she doesn't? Is it because she doesn't have enough information? Verse six. Look at it. He says, "Here's why destruction comes to you because you have rejected knowledge." I also will reject you from being my priest. So here we have the Lord talking to the the leaders, that's the, the, the priests. And in particular, I mean, he's talking to the leaders, but he's using this as an imagery to say, Israel, you yourself are like a giant priest to the world. What's that mean? It means Israel was to bridge the gap between the world and whom. God, Israel was to introduce the world to God as the Savior. You read Isaiah, for example, and even Hosea, but you read Isaiah, and you will see over and over and over again the statement of how God is a Savior. Unmistakable. And so she was to introduce the world to God as Savior. What happened? Look at the end of verse 6. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Now that's interesting. He doesn't just say, I'm going to forget you. I mean, the Lord says, I'm going to stop clearing a path and a future for your children. No hope for them. So the issue was, Israel just forgot, right? But... Was it just that they, she just forgot God's law? Is that all this is? Is just a, She just needs to kind of be reminded? A little rehashing over of the law? I don't believe, again, that this is an information issue. The Lord's point, then, is what? Listen carefully. It is that she forgot the whole point of the law. She forgot the meaning of the law. She forgot the whole purpose. She forgot what it was all about. Well, what was it all about? What's that? Verse 7. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. You see the issue here? What's the issue? Sin. Sin. Verse 8. Verse 8, though, tells us that what the real issue was. He goes even further. Look at it. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. All right, what's the Lord saying here? Getting the people to sin was, was food to them. And so here you have the leaders. Here you have the priests. And they're getting the people to sin rather than pointing them to God as Savior, their own people. Why would, why would the people, why would the leaders be doing that? Why would the leadership be enticing, encouraging, ignoring the people's sin? Listen. Because the leaders themselves were what? Sinning. That's why it can say in verse 9, like people like priests. They were trying to get rid of the guilt. They were trying to get rid of it by, you know how it is, you like to be around people that are worse than you because it makes you look what? Better. You like to be around people that you could easily achieve something beyond, to defeat, to be better than. Why? Because it glorifies you. It magnifies you. It makes much of you. And that's what the leadership is doing, is they're saying, we want the people to sin, we don't really care about their sin, because after all, they'll always take it a step further. Your children do, don't they? And that's why he also says there's no hope for them. Notice the word desire. It's a desire issue, beloved. The forgetting of the law was a desire issue. It wasn't that they didn't know the law. It wasn't that they didn't have the law. It wasn't that there was information lacking and missing. It it wasn't that they lost that valuable information. They didn't need more education and more lessons. They had corrupt desires. They desired sin over a gospel that reproves it. That's the point. See, the law just reveals our sinful hearts, and it exposes sin, and that's why they forgot the law. And this is also the reason why we get to the New Testament, and Jesus can say to the Pharisees, you don't know the Scripture. The Pharisees and the scribes who were experts in the law. Are you understanding their ignorance now? It wasn't so much that they didn't have this, you know, encyclopedia of, of knowledge going on in their brains. And and by the way, you and I can be very mistaken to look at people who just can spit out verses left and right and mistakenly think to ourselves, oh, what spiritual people. What great, wow! If only we could be as knowledgeable as them. Look, that does not equate godliness. It doesn't equate salvation. And what we see here really is that it was a desire of for sin and so therefore it was willful that's why they forgot the law because they willfully forgot it they said I don't want to I don't want the heart of it it's like John once said the light of the world came to, the, to his own and those who were his own what Did not receive him. The reason why Israel rejected Christ and his gospel, because they desired their sin more. That's why. They desired their sin more. They weighed it in the balance and they said, We can't stand this guy. Get rid of him. He continues to expose our sin. We don't like it. Get him out of here. He not only talks too much, he lives too much. And all of it is just conviction to us. Get rid of that. This is John 3.19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved, that's the desire, the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Let me say it a different way. Their ignorance exists because Jesus is a nuisance. He's a pest. Yeah. Why? Why? Because he's just constant light and he's constant conviction and he's constant truth and he's constant righteousness. And so therefore, the more we talk about Jesus, the more uncomfortable we get because look, he's perfection. And I don't like that because I desire, he's saying that all unbelievers have a desire for sin. A desire to stay in that and get away with it and not have the bony figure of righteousness pointing at us saying, but you're sinful. But you're sinful. But you're sinful. You understand that's the real reason why people today are unbelievers. That's the real reason why people stay in their ignorance. They desire their sin more than what the gospel calls them to. They desire their sin more than the repentance that the gospel calls The gospel exposes their sin, and so they hang on to their lives and say no to that narrow-minded gospel. Think about it. What would cause a people who knew so much, who had so much information on God, who had many portions of the law memorized, who had festivals and dates and customs, and it was all God all the time, see? What would cause that kind of people to do what Matthew 15 describes. You say, what's that? Well, you remember Matthew 15, he describes the the, the, the Pharisees as establishing a system where they had taken money and it set it aside. And it was money that they could have helped their parents as the parents get getting an older age. Of course, you know, they're not able to work and earn their money really as, as, as well. You know, they didn't have health care back then. And so... How are they going to take care of, the, of the, the parents? And here were these parents that were starved and, and were very, I mean, you get stuff as you get older. And they weren't taking care of them because that money that they could have used, they were calling Corbin, setting it aside, saying, oh, that's the money that we promised to God. That's what a sinful heart does. Survival of the fittest. Look, it's tough. That person can't really make it. But they're your parents. Well, because they had a desire for sin that was greater. And that was cramping that style. Sick devotion, wasn't it? That devotion to God, that was devotion to self. And you know what would make them do that? They didn't want their sin exposed, right? That's what spiritual ignorance looks like. That's what ignorant unbelief looks like. It's a desire issue, beloved. The desire for sin is greater than the desire to repent and come to Christ. It's a desire issue. And that's what Jesus was getting at in Mark 4. Do you remember the, the Mark 4, the parable of the soils? Was there anything wrong with the uh, seed? Anything wrong with the sower? He had the perfect conditions for there to be fruit. What do you need? Good soil. The problem then was the what? Soil. Soil. The soil clearly stood for the hearts of men in receiving the gospel and those hearts that desired sin were the unsaved ones. Paul says it in Ephesians 5, as believers we aren't to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Instead we are to do what? Expose them. Make them become visible. Expose them to the light. Why? You say, isn't that mean to just go around exposing people's sin? Ah, there's another sin. Take a look at this here. But the Bible says, doesn't that just sound kind of mean and harsh? I heard that that thought recently. No, it's loving to offer them hope, I believe, the, the Bible teaches. It's loving to show them their hearts, to show them that they desire sin over God And it's keeping them from the kingdom. That's loving. To show them all the riches that they could have in Christ. But they have forfeited it because of their desire for sin. Show them that they need to repent. That's loving. And so the issue is a desire for sin. Indulgence. It's lust. It's, It's given to that the issue. This is Proverbs 128 and 29 when it says, they will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. In other words, you get to a point where you are supposedly seeking diligently after God. Doesn't that remind you of, of, of Romans 10 2? Zeal for God, but without knowledge. There's zealous, they're passionate, they're seeking. But then it says, because they hated knowledge. This is why you're not that person's not going to, the unbeliever doesn't find God why the Jew wasn't able to find God is because they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. And Both of those got to come together. You see, it's the fear of the Lord that says the reason why I desire to know know and hear God's word is because it, it exposes sin and it shows me where I lack but it also shows me the Savior. They were unwilling to let go of that desire. These are the same kind of people that say, so you're trying to tell me that I need to let go of my fun and my the parties and just freedom and to follow Jesus? Sounds kind of narrow. Sounds kind of boring. Sounds kind of ho-hum. You don't get it then. Wasn't just spiritual knowledge that leads away from sin and to Christ. Notice the word "hate" there in Proverbs one. Hate is a desire word. Listen to Isaiah thirty verse nine. This is the Old Testament picture of of Israel painted for us. Isaiah thirty nine. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Again, they they have the words. They had the law, but they what? They hated what the law said. Verse 10. Who say to the seers, you must not see visions. See, they're telling these seers, don't stop seeing visions. And the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. I mean, doesn't it sound like preaching today? We want positive preaching. Give us something humorous. Give us something happy. Give us something that just kind of makes me feel good. Give us uplifting speeches and sermons. And then verse 11, get out of the way, they say to these prophets, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. That's what they were telling their preachers. You talk too much about that stuff. It's like one person once said that I spoke with. We need... More sermons on relationships. It's really? I gotta think you need more sermons on God and how He punishes people that sin. And how without Him you're hopeless. I gotta think you need more of that. Oh, that's so negative. Well Yeah, but that's where your only hope is, because then you maybe you'll turn to Christ as Savior. See, Res- 12, he goes on, That's, what's the Lord have to say about that kind of attitude? Verse 12, "...since you have rejected the word, and have put your trust in oppression and guile, and have re- relied on them, therefore this iniqu- iniquity will be to you like a breach about the fall, a bulge in a high wall, whose collapse comes subtly in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that assured will not be found among its pieces." to take fire from a heart or to scoop water from a sister. What can Israel do? That sounds so dark, doesn't it? Verse 15. And it is. All because she has said, look, I'm tired of the law and all it has to say and it's pounding my heart. Verse 15. In repentance and rest you will be saved, the Lord says. In quietness... And trust is your strength. Listen to this. But you were not willing. That's what it says there in Isaiah 30. You were not willing. That's where we're at, isn't it, Romans 10? You were not willing. It's the key to it all, and it brings us right back there to Romans 10. That's what Paul is saying. You're not willing. There's no desire Because your desire is for sin. The same reason all people don't become Christians. You desire your sin more than repentance and turning to Christ. Jesus said it in John 7 7. The world cannot hate you. Jesus said that to his unbelieving brothers. Remember that? But it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are e- evil. the reason why Israel stayed ignorant she couldn't stand Jesus nosing his way into their business and so it is as though she's saying stay out stop testifying stop saying my deeds are evil don't say that about me Israel desired its sin lots of zeal for God but not with the kind of knowledge that saved them let's get specific what were they ignorant of? What did their desire for sin blind them to? Well, first of all, there are your notes: righteousness, God's righteousness, verses one and three. We've already seen this. They didn't get how holy God was, right? Secondly, Christ, God's Messiah sent for us. I mean, they, so they were—they didn't like that God was—they didn't like God's righteousness. Couldn't stand that. I mean, you can't. After all, you can't have a desire for sin and embrace the righteousness of God, right? And you also can't have a desire for sin. And look at the provision that Christ uh, gave in going to the cross. He lived the righteous life. They didn't didn't get Christ, did they? He lived the righteous life. He came. Why did He come? He came to die on a cross. Why did He do that? Verse 4. To put an end to the empty system of law righteousness. What does that mean? Trying to get your way to heaven by what you do. Trying to impress God by your well-meaning intentions. Do you realize you can keep trying that and say how sincere you are, but you can be sincerely wrong? That is why this is so critical. Trying to get to heaven by doing good things, it's a a fallacy. And third, we learn they were ignorant of faith. Saving faith the need for that faith, what it really is. They didn't get how it worked. And we learned last week that saving faith confesses and believes two things. What are they? That Jesus is raised and that we owe Him our lives, right? We we, we are to surrender to His Lordship, right? The resurrection of Christ and the Lordship of Christ. Those are the two things, the two points of... Co- uh, uh, of, of um, the content—that's the word I was looking for. It's the content of of the gospel message: the resurrection of Christ, which includes His death, and the lordship of Christ. He is the Lord. He is the ruler, and He demands and deserves your allegiance, your affection, all. Let's move on to the fourth one. Number four fourth thing that they were ignorant of that they didn't understand that they didn't have. Israel in their unbelief did not have an understanding of mercy. You can call this the blind spot as we're talking about that. Three blind spots. Fourth one is an understanding of mercy. Now Paul starts a new section here and there are some that don't think that he does but I I believe he, he does. In fact let me give you kind of where we're going here. In verse 14 he starts another new section and then in verse 18 he finishes with another and this is a very important piece of what paul has to say to the jew and don't forget that paul wants them saved he's not just saying this because he's saying yeah jew nah, nah, nah." you know there you should feel bad that's not what he's that's not why he's saying this he's saying what he's saying because he wants them to come to christ So here's the message to Israel. You missed God's mercy. And what I want you to see here this morning, beloved, is how the mercy of God played into salvation. Now, why mercy? I'll show you in a moment, but here's why generally. The Jews had a really tough time seeing the Gentiles saved, didn't they? They had a really tough time with this. They had a tough time seeing any Gentile saved. They didn't want the Gentiles invited to the party, did they? Why? Because God chose them. Listen, and only them. This is for us, is what they basically were saying. And you let the Gentiles in and that takes the special out of it, see? Doesn't it? It's us. And by mercy, by the way, I mean God seeing a people who are miserable and caring for their misery. We can't take the misery away on our own, right? Israel was saying, "Us four, no more." Shut the door, and that wasn't God's plan. It wasn't God's plan then? And they didn't get that. And it's not God's plan now. And why this is a crucial part of the argument is because they, they there were lots of Gentiles getting saved, right? Lots of Gentiles at this church with Jews and. And Israel hated the Gentiles. So if salvation is open to them, that's another obstacle to the Jews. So Paul has to deal with it. Now what did they get about mercy? What, what were they blind to? Three layers of blindness that smothered mercy. First of all, the extension of God's mercy. The extension of God's mercy. Let's take a look at this here, Verse 11. And what they didn't get is they didn't get the measure of it. They didn't get how far-reaching God's mercy was in salvation. How, how far it reached. And you know, the name of the Gentiles was, was always used as a word for sinner. And this is really important, actually, to understand this, because there might be a little bit of con- confusion for you. The name of... The Gentile name, throughout all the Old Testament, was equated to what it meant to be a sinner. And this maybe was also why it was hard. For example, in Matthew 18, a part of a section on church discipline, confronting sin in the life of a Christian, is that if he refuses to listen to the plea of two to three people, if he refuses to repent, what does it say? Let him be as a, a Gentile, that is, as an unbeliever, a sinner. So the word Gentile, that's used negatively there. Same thing in Ephesians 4.17, by the way. Paul says, don't walk just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. So let me ask the question for you. So how can the Bible use Gentile in a bad way and then in another way including them for salvation? I mean, you expect people with... No revelation about God to live wild and rebellious. It's those wild and rebellious that God came to save. And that's how we're to understand this word Gentile used now in a good way. It's it's Romans 4, 5 all, all over again. But what Paul says in Romans 10 is this. God's salvation is so incredible. His mercy is so amazing because of how far it reaches to save, even to the Gentiles. In other words, you can't be too lost for God to save you. And that's good news. That's really good news for me. Because I don't know about you, but the older I get as a Christian, the worse I feel like I... It seems that I am. And I look at myself and I think, that's a real simple person. I mean I didn't think I was that sinful ten years ago and and I didn't think I was as sinful twenty years ago. Whoa. And you understand the mercy of God and it gets richer for you. And I tell you, here's another thing. You might be looking at some guy and going, Oh, that's a lost person. <laughs> that person has a messed up life. And you forget. No, no! Wait a minute. That's exactly how the Jew looked at the Gentiles. Well the, those guys are bad. I mean, all their Greek mythology and all their temple worship and you know the orgies that they had at these temples—unbelievable, dark, godless sin going on in there. Oh, those are bad people. It's a good thing that God saves the good ones, right? That's the opposite of what the gospel message is. The gospel is that God has come to save the lost. And this is to the Jew. Even Gentiles. So you can't be too lost for God to save you. The other way to look at Paul's message in the negative way is, again, is that to the Jew... You Jew are in no special position with God just because of how God chose Israel. That's also the thing that, that he's saying to them here. And so the point is that the gospel is universal. It has no borders. There's no stopping points is what he's saying here. Look, guys. It is so amazing. The fact that God will save anyone is so amazing. Don't get caught up think it to yourself, Oh, that person has no hope. I mean, after all, they didn't grow up in a Christian home. And after all, look at how bad it is over there. And, and you've got parents that are involved in drugs. And, they've, and this person over here has parents that are so abusive. And this other family over here is, is so messed up over there. And you can't think to yourself, there's no hope for that child. or There's no hope for that kid. or There's no hope for that person. I mean, after all, they, what a bad start that they had. God can save anyone. And He does. And you and I are living proof of that aren't we? Oh let's get off the high horse look at verse 11 and let's break it down for the scripture says again go back to the, let's go back to the Old Testament Israel is what he's telling Israel real interesting Paul's going to quote uh, Isaiah 28:16 but let me show you something you probably didn't see first word there. Whoever, when he says whoever believes in him, who will not be disappointed? Believe it or not, that first word is the key to our section, verses 11, 12, and 13. First word. And it's the word whoever. Why it's an important word is because that word actually is not in Isaiah 28, 16. You say, uh-oh, Paul just added the scripture. I don't feel comfortable with that. Well, Let me see if I can help you with this. Look at Romans 9.33. Same quote. At the end of the verse it says, And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Same quote. See the he who? He got it right there. That's an exact quote from Isaiah 28.16. See the whoever of 10.11? Of That's not an exact quote. He's added the word. See, what word did he add? It's the word pas in Greek. P-A-S. Just one word. And that word means all or every single one. Everybody. Everybody. You know how that is? You got a mixed group, boys, girls. And if you want to make the point, this is for both boys and girls, you would say all or everyone. He's doing that here. He's saying, I want you to know the gospel goes in every single direction. It is not geographically challenged. It is not racially challenged. It is for all. You could say, God, this gospel message has absolutely no boundaries. You say, "Well, what gives Paul the right to add to Scripture?" Well, uh, he is an apostle being directed by the Holy Spirit, right? You could start there, but I believe what Paul did was give us the meaning of Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. In other words, look, guys, that's what the Lord meant. That's the, that's what we should understand Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen to be saying. in other words what he's saying is salvation isn't just for the Jews and that's what the Lord was saying way back 700 years before Christ through Isaiah very very important argument here that's what all means whoever believes in other words salvation isn't just for Jews any person in the entire world can believe and be saved see the extension this is the very same thing that Jesus was saying in Luke 14, and I and it was there, those verses there at the front of your bulletin to kind of remind you of that. And this is a whole parable. I'm not going to give you the whole parable, but Jesus said, the, said this. Uh, the slave came back after after the, the, the first the it was a first invitation, and it appears that is related to the Jews. And then they came, and he said, uh, They gave excuses and so many of them didn't come. In verse 21, then the head of the household who had sent out an invitation for this big dinner and people didn't come to it. He got angry and he said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out in the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. And the point of that parable is God is merciful and he's merciful to the outcasts, those that are lame, those that are blind. Those that don't look like they should receive salvation, he's merciful to them. And that's an important parable because it basically the Jews viewed the Gentiles that way. And he's telling them Salvation's for outcast people. Is that you? Mr Jew, is that you? Mr Goody Two Shoes, is that you? Mister, my life's been a great life. I don't do bad things to people. Is that you? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you see yourself as vile? Do you see yourself as an outcast? Because until you do, you can't be saved. Then look at the hymn in verse 11. Believe in Him. In Isaiah 28, that was Jehovah. Jehovah God. Here it's Jesus Christ. Any person can believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. But will will you notice another thing? Verse 9, believe in your heart that God raised Jesus, you'll be saved. Verse 10, believe and it will result in righteousness. And then in verse 11, believe in Christ and you won't be disappointed. You say, so which one is it? Well, it's all of them. All of that happens to you when you believe in Christ. And so that's just another result you get when when you're saved. You say, but what does it mean? Well, verses 9 and 10 relate it to salvation. So therefore, when he says you won't be disappointed, that thought has to be related to salvation too, doesn't it? In other words, you have to say in some way salvation takes us out of that place. It takes us away from being disappointed. Say it a different way. It tells us that the unsaved life is one huge state of disappointment. Is that not true? It also speaks of the disappointment coming to all unbelievers at the end of their lives. You will be disappointed when you die and you go before God Almighty and he says to you, I never knew you. I never knew But I sat in church. I never knew you. But I was good. I never knew you. But I didn't hurt people. I never knew you. Here is the eternal flame and eternal fire for you that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's a disappointment. Wouldn't that be a disappointment? Now the word also means more than disappointment. It literally means shame. And I looked this word up in every place I could. I looked at it in in extra Greek literature as well. And I found in one particular place was fascinating in an old Greek manuscript that, it's not related to the Bible. It was a word used during that day in the context of marriage. And it was used when a, when a man is shamed by something in the context of marriage. Maybe shamed by some behavior from his wife, especially extramarital behavior. Vice versa too, a woman being shamed by something that her, that her husband's done. And part of that word was used earlier, by the way, also in, in, in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Same thing. What's the gospel do then? Listen. It deals with the shame that we have. You see, where does the shame come from? What he's saying here basically is for those that believe in him won't be ashamed. You won't have shame anymore. You say, where does the shame come from? It comes from the discovery in our hearts that we are enemies of God, that we're rebels, that we're breakers of God's law, that we're corrupt and evil at heart. And you know, this is a really important message for us today, shame. Because there are not a lot of people talking about being ashamed. They talk about the opposite. James Boyce, who's dead and gone a few years ago to be with the Lord... But James Boyce, in a study where he was looking for quotations on this very topic, shame, found that he couldn't find any information on that word, shame. Listen, no one had done any defining or explaining of what it meant to be ashamed of anything that he had found in the last hundred years until he found it in an Oxford dictionary written, put together in 1896. Listen to his conclusion. Quote, Apparently no one has felt much shame about anything since roughly 1896. The last date for which I could find a quotation. End quote. Shame is the issue. And we have a people, like Jeremiah 6 says that just kind of almost laugh at sin and stick their prideful, proud necks up and make jokes and are not ashamed of their sin. Notice also the word believes. It's from the Old Testament. Salvation has always been by faith, beloved. You understand that? So God's plan has always been that our shame could be removed by faith and God's provision to sufficiently deal with our sins Jesus Christ. One of the things I love about that Jeremiah 6 passage is it says that the people there ceased to blush about their sin. Have we been inoc- inoculated Have we kind of been anesthetized? Have we kind of gone numb to sin, so that we don't even blush at it? We should be ashamed of it. It's the gospel message that God came to take that away. If you don't have it, there's nothing to take away, right? But but the bad side of that is you'll stand before the Lord and be condemned. So that word of the beginning, whoever, or you could say all, that's the key word. The gospel is for whoever believes, and it could be anybody that feels that sense of shame. Anybody. You say, but isn't it for the ones whom God has elected? We can't go too far with that word, whoever. Well, yes, it is, but we don't know who they are, do we? (laughs) So whoever believes, see? That's the way I look at it. And then Paul's application of what he just said, verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Say why say that? Because in their minds, the Jews made a distinction. This is so huge for the Jew. Remember in John four, the woman at the well. I mean, there was just huge rift. Or, or uh, how about Acts ten? You remember how difficult it was for, for Peter to make that transition? Lord, no, no. He he appeared to him in a vision. He said, "Wow, oh, I don't know. This is just so hard for me." But then Peter came. He, he came around where he felt okay, because in 1118, Acts 11.18, he says this, Well then, here's the conclusion. God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. I mean, the Jews just hated the Gentiles, and even the church. There they had Jews there. They were whoa, really unwilling to receive the Gentiles. And finally, they they crossed that path. The Jews struggled with the thought the Gentiles were a part of the New Covenant. Now let me give you a huge illustration. You remember Jonah? Here's Jonah. Successful prophet living during a very prosperous time during Israel's day. Second Kings 14 tells us that their, the borders of Israel had expanded to its largest than it had ever been. And what that means to you and me is that they had huge success. They were living fat and happy. Peace. But outside of the borders, they hated all else. If you were inside those borders, okay. Outside of those borders, they hated you. Syrians, Assyrians, Samaritans, Babylonians, Egyptians, whoever didn't matter, they hated you all the same. You were dogs to them. And if you know a thing or two about the Assyrians, they were these were absolutely brutal people, pagan to the hill, violent, excuse me, violent and, and idolatrous. The Lord calls then Jonah, a prophet. And he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, capital city of that rebellious, brutal people. He knew why. You want me to preach the gospel, don't you? Yep. And he knew what would happen once he preached the gospel. What would the people do? Repent. I don't want to do that. So what does Jonah do? Goes the opposite way. This wasn't a guy with bad theology. He knew that God was everywhere. (laughs) He knew David. He knew Psalm 139 quite well. Behold, if I lie in my bed in Sheol, thou art there. Okay? He knew that. Went the other way, opposite direction, thinking maybe God will get the message. I don't want to go. And God said, No, I do get the message. Caused a violent storm, threw Jonah out, giant fish swallowed him, spit him back up on right where he needed to be there in Nineveh, said, All right, get to work. Right? You do understand I'm not letting you go, Jonah. And Jonah's thinking to himself, I'm going to be the laughing stock of Israel. Because they all, we all hate these people. I'm going to go preach and I'm going to come back and they're going to make fun of me. You say, why did God do this? I mean, didn't they Didn't they just turn evil in less than 100 years? 100 years later, after these people repented, they did. And God destroyed them. So why do why go through all of this? I'll tell you why. Because the, the reason why is 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 to give the lesson, and it's a twofold lesson. First of all, because God is merciful to any who repent, and secondly, and this is also a very important lesson, because the salvation of the Gentiles would shame Israel. That's why, and by the way they needed that they needed it during this time too right you know why they needed that because here's Israel again living fat and happy and the rest of the nations are dying and going to hell you know what she doesn't care absolutely doesn't care big deal so Jonah goes the people repent the whole group of them repented and how do you think Jonah felt about this Chapter four tells us he was ticked off. He was mad. What right did these Gentiles have in God's mercy? And this is a Jewish salvation, right? I mean, that's what his thinking was. And you remember Jonah was so bitter that even when God provided, you know, that shade and that rest for him, Jonah was miserable. God gave Jonah shade and then he sent a worm to kill that shading plant and Jonah said after he did that death is better to me than life. I'd rather die than watch these guys repent. I cannot stand it. And you know what's interesting? You get to the end of Jonah has Jonah changed? There's no mention of it. And there's still that way to this day. hating Christ, don't they? We get to the New Testament and the people are still that way. Luke 4, Jesus shows up on the sea and enters the Sabbath, stands to read. He reads a place where it was written about him you know, coming to Messiah, preach the gospel to the poor and the lame and blind and so forth to proclaim release and give sight to the blind and set those who are oppressed free and so forth. And then he sits down and he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm here. And the people didn't like that. And so he says, A prophet's not welcome in his hometown. Now watch this. People did not like hearing the truth. So Jesus reminds them of the prophet Elijah and how he was sent to none of those from Israel, but only to Zarephath, to a woman who was a widow. In other words, a Gentile woman. He reminds them also of Elisha who cleansed only one leper and it wasn't a Jewish leper. It was Naaman the Syrian. You think they enjoyed hearing that? How do you think these people are going to respond? Verse 28, And all the people, all the people, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage and as they heard these things they tried to throw Jesus off of a cliff. He's telling them, guys have come to save all, including the Gentiles. Well, this guy can't be the Messiah. Better throw him off a cliff. And you know what? That was in their heart, and it's been in their heart. They'd rather see Jesus dead, and eventually, he did. Of course, he allowed himself So Paul's point is this. You guys just can't see how merciful God is. God has extended his mercy to the Gentiles. And you know, we, by the way, we, we've been studying this in Ephesians 2 and 3, haven't we? That barrier has been taken down, that dividing wall destroyed by the blood of Christ, that separation, that distinction was taken away through the cross, nailed to it. Ephesians 3, 6, the same thing. And you can read that on, be reminded read that on your own, how amazing. The Lord would do this. So how could God demonstrate his mercy? Maybe like Israel did, put the Gentiles in the back of the bus and put them behind a curtain. Don't let them go all the way into the church building. Yes, they can be saved, but put them in the back. Is that how? No, point number two, the exhaustion of God's mercy. Verse 12. Okay, so we have Jew and Gentile saved the same way, right? But would you notice what God does in saving us, verse 12? For the same Lord is Lord of all. What does it say next? Abounding in riches. That's good news. That's referring to Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of all. That's the message of the gospel, right? So you're, you see your sin and you surrender to Jesus Christ and you give Him your, your allegiance and He was raised to save you and you turn to Him but notice all those riches. You say, why say that here? Because what were the Jews looking for? Material blessings, weren't they? A kingdom. And not only that, they were looking for blessings that were only for them, see. Now, they had pictured a Jewish kingdom, but God says here, no, that kingdom extends to the Gentiles and it exhausts my riches for them as well. In other words, they, didn't, they don't get the leftovers. They get all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. You know how those, you know how those Jews should have responded when Paul came around preaching the gospel and they received it, and then they had the Gentiles there. They should have not only let them in the synagogue but given them the what front seats. Don't go too fast past the word rich. God abounds in riches, like what love, mercy. Grace, kindness, all those things that you need to cover up your sin, right? And give you righteousness. All the riches to comfort you, to encourage you, to bring you power and so forth. And Paul prays for those riches in Ephesians 3 in verses 14 and 19. Do you remember that? We learned this last week where the riches of receiving power in the inner man and Christ in our hearts to guide our faith, to cause us to live by faith and the understanding of the love of Christ on the cross and being filled with all the fullness of God and all that He is. Those are riches. Great blessings. The major point here is this, is that God lavishes this kind of mercy and all its riches to any Gentile who places faith in Christ. And the Jew thought all those riches were exclusively for him. Now again, how does a person get that mercy? How does a, a, a Jew or a, a Gentile get that kind of wealth? Is it for anyone? Yes, but how do you get it? We know what Paul said in verse 9. He's going to say virtually the same thing, but look how he says it in verses 12 and 13. Third point, the entrance into God's mercy. The entrance into God's mercy. Into verse 12. The abounding riches are for all who what? Call upon him. And then verse 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the key, the key is calling upon the Lord, right? Calling upon His name, and that's another way, by the way, of saying getting salvation, getting saved. And we already know how. We already know the content of that call. He's talking about now how to go about the whole deal. The Content is in verses nine and ten. He's saying now, and you know what? Any person can call out and receive that. Now in chapter 9 we learn all about God's call to uh, to the elect in verse uh, 11, because of him who calls. Would you notice here, God's extensive and exhaustive mercy is for the ones who what? Call upon him. It's both. God's call on our lives, but it also demands our call upon him. And that's the human side. What's this call like? How do we know God will really save a person who calls out to him? Well, like before, Paul goes back to the Old Testament. And will you notice in verse 13, that's a quote of Joel 2.32. Nothing new. God saved people this way in the Old Testament. Isaiah 28.16, it's by faith. Joel 2.32, it's for those who call upon him. That's how you do it. You call upon him. And I love the fact that the Old Testament, the New Testament gospel is nothing different than the Old Testament one. And so you see back there that what a person looks like has been saved. God's moved on their hearts, and they cry out for His mercy. They cry out to worship Him, to praise Him for His leading of them and for His lordship over them. Fascinating this call upon Him. You say, "What is that? What is that?" Genesis 4.26 is where we first see a mention of that. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now this isn't just prayer. It's not just saying, where are you God? This is the cry of saved people. This is the call. It's an act of humility. When you combine this with verse 9, you get the picture. It's a call for Jesus Christ. It's crying out. Lord, I am lost. I need your mercy. And if you have said that Jesus Christ is the one to provide that mercy, then I cry out to him to be my Lord. Now, it's a call for his sovereign rule over your life. Fascinating. This is from Joel 2. passage that, when it said call on the name of the Lord, it was calling on Jehovah. In our passage, the name of the Lord is, like it says in verse 9, Jesus Christ, the raised one. Same one. What's that call look like? You know, it's like that blind beggar Bartimaeus in Mark Mark 10.46. Just sitting by the road, he heard Jesus was coming, couldn't see, but he did have a mouth, and so he cried out. He called on his name, Jesus, son of David, have what? Mercy on me. That's the call. Why mercy? Because this man knows he's a sinner. He knows, see the connection there? See, what does being given sight have anything to do with mercy? Mercy because he deserves no blessing from God because of his sins. You understand that now? I mean, this man knows that that he has a greater issue than just physical blindness. He's spiritually blind too, so he needs divine mercy. What does Jesus do? He told the man that his faith made him well. You see the connection? His faith. In other words, I can see that you're a Romans 10... 9 and 10 man. I can see that. I can see that now you are doing the Romans ten thirteen thing by crying out and calling upon me. I can see that you have faith in me, Jesus was basically saying. How about Peter in Matthew 24, another picture. Jesus came to them walking on the water. And they were scared but not peter usually he should be a little more scared but he's not here and i guess his love for the for the lord overtook his fear and he just ran out there on the water oh jesus said come all right i'm coming i can walk I'll, if you say come i'll do it and then he begins to notice what took his eyes off of jesus And I love the words just before that from Peter. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. See, that's all he needed was a command. That's what calling out to Jesus looks like. Are you commanding me, Lord, to come to you? Because if you am, I'm coming. And then he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink. Verse 30 says called out Lord save me that's it it's a call that's the call Lord save me listen to the next words immediately Jesus stretched out his arm and he took hold of him that's what happens when you cry out to Him for mercy. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And God says, and He reaches down and says, I will save you. You see what it says? See the guarantee? Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now let's bring this to a conclusion. What's all this, what's all this mean? I'll give you a few thoughts here. You know what it means? It means that God can save anyone. Whoever. He can save anyone. Have you lost sight of that? Maybe you're sitting here and you're not saved. God can save you. God can save you. God's no respecter of age. It doesn't matter how young you are. God can save you. You know another thought here? I'll give you a second thought. The soul is what matters, not the skin or the heritage, right? He says no distinction. The soul is what matters. So key. Oh, I tell you recently, I was reading a fabulous book, and then it got to talking about, it called it Covenant Children. And my my, my heart kind of sank a little bit because... The idea was, and this was way back in the 1700s, that this child was baptized and this was told that it was a covenant child. And what confusion, because the child was growing up and feeling the weight of his or her sin and thinking, I don't know, you know, I I'm a covenant child, but I don't feel saved. And the father had to, or the grandfather had to tell this child. No, 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 no. And I loved how he did it because he kind of moved away from this kind of child thinking to say, look, that doesn't save you. Those waters didn't save you. You need faith in Christ. Just because you grew up in a home where we valued high the word of God and valued high salvation and valued high the blood of Christ doesn't mean that you yourself have come to know him soul is what matters, not the skin or the heritage. A third thought here, lordship is still the issue. Notice lord of all. There is no other salvation but lordship salvation. Fourth, notice that if his riches are abounding to us as a result of being saved, it must mean that we are destitute and poor without him. Right? It means that's what we were and we still are without him. If we don't have him or if we're not enjoying him, we are poor. What poor people. And you know, beloved, we can act like such paupers. But if you have Christ, you have all riches. Always good to remember that. Let me give you a fifth thought here. Calling on Christ to save you is a desperate act of a dying man. You know, that sets the dependence for the rest of our lives as believers. And then lastly, it is guaranteed God will save any person who cries out for His mercy. There are no steps. You don't have to take beads and go to some confessional closet and then do the third thing and the fourth thing and the fifth thing. It's real simple. Just cry out for his mercy. He'll save you. And then you get to experience the joy of knowing Christ in the context of other believers that have cried out to you. Wouldn't it be great to go to somebody's home and say to them, now at some point I know you claim Christ, so at some point in your life you cried out for his mercy. What did that look like? Share that with me, will you? And what great fellowship you'll have when they do, right? That's good stuff. Well, praise the Lord. He's merciful. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your mercy. And we are indebted, Lord, to you being such a merciful God. See, Lord, that this was the great stumbling block there for Israel. And and we pray, Father, that it would not be for us. We thank you, dear Lord, that your mercy is just so exhaustive so extensive and, and Lord that it uh, also comes to us individually that we can enjoy it and we thank you dear Lord it reminds us of what we were like and as sinners Lord and, and that apart from you we can do nothing and pray dear Father that uh, if there are those here this morning Lord that do not know Christ that way you would lead them to your throne of grace and show them your mercy. Shower it on them and cause them to become lovers of Christ. We pray, Lord, uh, as we keep moving through Romans, trying to understand this wonderful, great, deep epistle, Lord. Open up our minds to understand it. Increase our affections for you. And Lord, may you be glorified. And may this not just be knowledge, but may it be a heart affection towards you, for you. And may our desire not be for sin, but a desire for God alone to receive glory. We praise you and thank you. We pray this in the name of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.